Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. So this is actually still part of our series on Mark. But as we saw last week, you know, Jesus was beginning to talk about his sufferings and how he's a suffering servant. And so I wanted to take a week to go back and show that this was not something new. This was something that had been predicted in the Old Testament. And so we're going to look at one particular text. There's many that we could look at, but we're going to look at Isaiah 53. It actually begins in Isaiah 52. It is what is known as one of the servant songs of Isaiah. So it begins at chapter 52, verse 13, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 53, which is 12 verses. So I encourage you, hear now the words of the living and redeeming God, your King and your Savior. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. 
and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will defy the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. May God bless his word. Last week as we were going through Mark's gospel, we came to a point that was kind of shocking. It was like one of these sections where, you know, when you have a TV show, they come to a cliffhanger episode and you've got to kind of wait. Suddenly something in the movie or the book takes a turn that you weren't foreseeing. Well, that's what had happened in Mark 8.31. You remember Peter had just answered the question that the whole first half of the gospel had been about. Who is Jesus? And he had said, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus in verse 31, we read, he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, for Peter and the other apostles, we know it was for Peter, because remember in the very next verse, he takes Jesus aside to rebuke him, okay? But that's because it was such a shock to them. It was one of those cliffhangers. It was one of those moments where the story seemed to take an unusual turn. But notice, Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things. And he was clear about this. In the next verse, it says he was teaching this plainly, boldly, clearly to them. So why must it happen? Well, it had to happen because that is central in the Old Testament story. On another occasion after the resurrection, Jesus walks with two disciples and says, how slow you are to understand this. Did not the Christ have to suffer? Is this not what we read about in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the writings, the three sections of the Old Testament? Jesus says, this is the message. So I wanted to take a week to step back. We're going to kind of do like, you know, sometimes when there, there's been a turn like that in the movie, then they suddenly do a flashback that helps you say, oh, okay, now I know why this just happened. Well, this is what's happening here, and I'm just going to take one text, which is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah, there are four ser- servant songs, and I'm actually in After Hours, which will be out this Wednesday, uh, this Tuesday. I'm going to be discussing a little bit more about the servant songs and how the New Testament says that those songs are actually about Jesus Christ. How the Gospel of Mark does, but how it is in the rest of the New Testament as well. And so you can kind of dive into that. We're just going to take one of the four servant songs, the one here in Isaiah 52 and 53, and kind of look at it and see how This is pointing forward to what Jesus had told us in Mark 8.31. So let's dive in and look at the suffering servant of the Lord. Now what's interesting is right there in chapter 52, those first verses, and I'm not sure why in the Middle Ages they broke the chapter where they did. Chapter 53 should have begun with the servant song. It's kind of weird that they did a chapter break right in the middle of the song, but that's what you've got. But the section in 52 
gives us this interesting thing because in verses 13 and 15, which I've got highlighted here in yellow, it's telling us what we would expect of the servant of the Lord. We would expect the servant of the Lord to be exalted, to be high and lifted up, to be honored. And so notice in verse 13, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And Peter would say, yes, that's what I expect. That's what's there. Notice in verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. That is usually used of the high priest. The high priest sprinkled blood on things. And here we're being told that that this servant in a high priestly fashion is going to sprinkle the nations to provide cleansing from sin. And notice that kings who normally get to do the talking have their mouths shut. They're quiet before him because this person is so exalted. So in verses 13 and 15, we see the exaltation of the servant, which we would completely expect. But then notice what that's sandwiched around. Notice verse 14, because in verse 14, we see the surprise, the servant suffers. And we're told, just as there were many who were appalled at him, Why would they be appalled at the servant? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. What? How does this fit in? We were just told in verse 13 he's going to be exalted. We're told in verse 15 he is. Well, that's the mystery of what is going on here, that the the surprise is that the servant of the Lord is going to have to suffer. And what we're going to see is, there are continual levels of suffering. Remember, Jesus said he's going to suffer many things. So the suffering is not just the cross. As we're going to see, it culminates in the cross, but really throughout Jesus' entire incarnation, his entire life and death, there is suffering, a descent. So let's begin by looking, because that's what Isaiah begins with. In verses 1 to 3, there is a suffering because it's the, the servant's beauty is hidden. This is the paradox of the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus, who is fully divine, does not cease to be divine, but he takes humanity to himself, and so his deity is veiled. His glory is hidden, and therefore it is missed by many. So notice in verse 1, he says, Who's believed our message, and to whom has the strong arm of the Lord been revealed? See, this is the servant. He's the strong arm of the Lord. We're told elsewhere in Isaiah that the arm of the Lord is going to work salvation for him. This is this servant. But notice in verse 2, while he's a strong arm of the Lord, he's referred to as a tender shoot. What a, what a strange juxtaposition. Well, which is he? And the answer is both. He's the strong arm of the Lord, but he's also a tender shoot. Notice furthermore that we read, he had no beauty or majesty to attract him. Now what's interesting, of course, is as the eternal Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is beauty incarnate, but we don't see it. As the king of the universe, he is actually majesty incarnate, but it's veiled and we 
miss it. And that's why as we've gone through the gospel, we've seen person after person after person has not understood who Jesus is. Remember in the gospel of Mark constantly, even when he's like, when he speaks and he rebukes the wind, the disciples are like, who is this? What is going on here? They don't understand. The demons have understood from the very first time they came into contact with him, they knew his, his majesty. They don't consider him beautiful because they hate him, but they understand and see accurately who he is, but no one else does. This is the mystery of the incarnation. And what it means is Jesus' entire life, it's not as if he had a life that was free from sorrows, and then all of a sudden the cross came. No, his entire life was full of sorrows. Notice it says that um, he was a man of sorrows, like the last song we sang this morning, and he was familiar with suffering. This is, this is Jesus' entire incarnation. It is crystallized on the cross. It is focused on the cross, but his entire life has been one of suffering. He has been despised. He has been rejected. He has been misunderstood. And it is summarized, if you want to think of it, is and that last amazing phrase, Jesus is referred to elsewhere as the desired of the nations. We sing that in some of our Christmas carols. He's the desired of the nations. Oh, desire of the nations, come. But Isaiah tells us the desire of the nations is going to come, and we esteem him not. We not only don't recognize him when he comes, we not only don't desire him when he comes, we have no esteem for the king at all. We don't recognize the holiness of the high priest. We don't see and understand and respond to the beauty. In fact, we think there is nothing there to be desired. And that would be enough, but Isaiah keeps intensifying the suffering. Notice he goes on in the next verses, in verses 4 and 5, we, we move lower still, if you will. He refers to Jesus' suffering by nine different words. Nine words. In verse 4, there are five words. He speaks of taking our infirmities, carrying our sorrows. He is stricken. He is smitten. He is afflicted. All of these are words of suffering. And then in verse 5 he goes on and he uses the word that he is pierced, he is crushed, he is punished, he is wounded. Nine different ways he's pointing this out. So, so Isaiah is saying, I told you in verse 3 he was familiar with suffering. Let me continue to expand that out for you. Here's nine different ways that the ser servant is going to be familiar with with suffering. Can you see why Jesus told the disciples, you need to understand this. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of Man. Yes, I am the servant. And what that means is I'm going to suffer, not once, I'm going to suffer many things. Because Isaiah 53 lists at least nine of them. But this is meant to be shocking to us. This is, this is a struggle. I, I mentioned briefly last week that actually ancient Jewish commentaries went through and said, well, we'll, we'll know, okay, look, in 52, 13, and 15, yes, he's the king, he's exalted. This has got to be a different person who's doing the suffering. 
No, it's the same person. That's the paradox. That's the struggle. It's the same one who is exalted is going to suffer. And that's the struggle that we all have. That's why Peter responded the way he did. But Jesus said, make no mistake, this must happen. Isaiah goes further, and in verses 6 to 9, it's not enough that just Jesus was incarnate and that he bore all of this suffering. It is crystallized in the suffering of the servant in death. So notice in verses 6 to 9, he's bringing up this analogy of sacrificial lambs. But what's interesting is there's two sheep here. We're sheep, and the servant is like a sheep. But the difference is we are sheep who are straying. We are sheep who should be punished for our behavior, but we're not. Because instead, he is punished. We are straying sheep. He becomes the sacrificial lamb. Notice in verses 7, he speaks of oppression and affliction and judgment. Uh, but the sacrificial lamb, he tells us, is silent. He said, look, he's going, but just like a sheep before its shearers is silent, my servant, even though he is suffering unjustly, it's wrong. This should not be happen. Should not be happening. He does not say a word. And if you remember reading ahead in the Gospels, what keeps amazing Pilate and the the high priest and his compatriots on the night of Jesus' betrayal? That he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer their accusations. He's silent. Only when the high priest, you know, adjures him in the name of God. He says, yes, I, I am the Messiah, and you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. And one time when Pilate, you know, says, don't you realize I have power? But other than that, he's just silent before them. He doesn't uh, plead his cause or his case. And now what we would expect, again, if we put ourselves into this, we would expect at this point in the movie, somehow the plot is going to shift and this lamb is going to be rescued. The servant is going to be saved. But notice in verse 8, what we're actually told is that is not going to happen. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He's assigned a grave with the wicked. This is Isaiah's way of saying, look, no, the lamb is not delivered. The sacrificial lamb does what sacrificial lambs do. He dies. He is slain. And he says he is, he is stricken, he's afflicted, he's put to death like a lamb. And, you know, in another analogy, he's assigned a grave with the wicked and with the righteous. So this lamb suffers and dies. All of this should be causing us to say, how can this be? And it's again, this is where the entire second half of Mark's gospel is going to go. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, but what that means is, yes, he's the king, but he's the king who came to die. And that's exactly what Isaiah 53 is telling us. And so the amazing thing is when we ask, how can it be? Isaiah goes on and tells us this is done because it is the will of God. Now this is a mystery. But make no mistake about it. Notice in verse 10. Yet 
it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. This is the lowest moment of all of the sufferings of Jesus. Now make no mistake, wicked men enacted this. Wicked men who had no right to judge him judged him. They are the ones who put him to death. And it's done for, as we're going to see in a few moments, you and I are the wicked ones. We are the ones who would have been joining right in. But make no mistake, it's not as if God was sitting up there and saying, oh, I didn't foresee this was going to happen. Nor is the Lord sitting up there saying, oh, if there was just some way I could, if I'd have started a little bit earlier, I could have stopped this. No, it is actually by the will of God to crush the servant, to make the servant a guilt offering. And then notice the the amazing phrase at the end. One would think if the servant comes and the servant suffers and he is not rescued and he is put to death, that that would be a thwarting of the will of God. But notice what Isaiah assures us. Not only is it not a thwarting of the will of God, the will of the Lord prospers in this. He's actually accomplishing and prospering the will of God as he is being made a guilt offering. This is one of the most mysterious moments in all of history. This is looking forward to the moment on the cross, and Matthew records this in Matthew 27, where Jesus is on the cross, and we're told from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness comes over the land, and in about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is captured, Isaac Watts in the, in the hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed, uh, says uh, that the sun refused to shine because uh, the Christ the mighty maker died. See, that's well did the sun shut his glories in and refuse to shine. The, the sun can't shine because this is the most egregious thing in all of human history. And at that moment, the Father turns his face away. We sing these songs, but we forget what it means. It's not, please hear me, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is not an analogy. It is not a metaphor. It is not hyperbole. It is literal truth. Tragic truth. And brothers and sisters, you and I, if you were honest, how many of you have ever felt forsaken by God? Don't, don't, don't get religious now. There are times we do. But let me tell you, you are never forsaken by God because He was. You and I feel like we're forsaken. We can take the Psalms on our lip and pray those things and cry out. But know this, you are never forsaken. He was literally forsaken because He was bearing our sin. 
This is the moment. This is what we do every Good Friday when we come through. This is suffering beyond compare. If you've ever watched the movie The Princess Bride, there's the machine that he's got that takes life away. And he comes in and he you know, cranks it to the very, very top. And he does it. And somebody hears it and he says, that's the sound of ultimate suffering. But see, that wasn't the sound of ultimate suffering. Ultimate suffering was the cross. It was when Christ cried out Psalm 22. When all of the abandonment, all of the rejection, all of the feeling alone in all of human history was grabbed, was crystallized, was focused into one moment upon the servant. And notice, Isaiah tells us why this shocking moment happened. He tells us that this was done to atone for our sins. Now again, there are many today who want to try and deny this. There are many, you know, uh, uh, some of the songs we sing refer to Jesus bearing the Father's wrath for us, and there are churches try and change those lyrics. They don't like that. They don't want to hear that. Well, let's read Isaiah 53 and see what he says. The, the servant did this to take up our infirmities, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Because we like sheep were going astray. We each had turned to our own way. That's four things there in the first, uh, in verses four and five, and then in verse six, two more different things that are pointing out why this was done. It is because of our sin. Isaiah can't be clearer. He must bang his head when people struggle with this. Okay? Jesus is bearing our sins. Notice he does this by sheer repetition. Okay? This is not because Isaiah had extra parchment to write on. Okay? He didn't even probably have parchment. He's probably having to do this on a clay tablet or something at the time. Okay? He, when he says infirmities, sorrows, transgressions, iniquities, you're, you're going astray. Your, your iniquity is there. All of this is saying by sheer repetition, do you get the point. Do you understand what's happening? But not only does he do it by sheer repetition, notice how many different phrases he uses. Because whether it's our infirmity of sin, whether it is our sorrow that comes from sin, whether it is our transgressions, whether you look at them as iniquities, whether you look at it as going astray, turning our own way, however you want to term it, Isaiah says that's what it is. That's why it is. Whatever word you've got for sin, he's going through his dictionary and finding his thesaurus. He's finding different words and saying, I want to keep turning it around. I want you to understand it's your sin and it's my sin that put him there. And notice I love the prophet. It's not your infirmities, it's our infirmities. Remember from the very beginning of Isaiah's call, you're going to be my mouthpiece. And Isaiah, what's the very first thing he recognizes needs atonement? my lips. The very thing I'm going to use to serve God is unclean. I need 
atonement. And so Isaiah tells us that. But it's not only through variations of the terms for sin. Notice here that the sin is both universal and the sin is specific. It is our iniquities. We all like sheep. This is universal, all human beings. But it's not just a universal problem. It's also my individual choices because notice as well, he says that each of us has gone his own way. Isaiah is saying, I'm doing it by repetition. I'm doing it by pulling up my thesaurus and using every term I can come up with. And I'm telling you it's a universal problem and it's an individual problem. How much clearer can I be? You have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. And the servant is forsaken. He is bearing the wrath of God, not for his sin, but for mine. This is the message that Isaiah is doing. I read, and I was reading a, a sermon on this particular thing, and I'd shared the story back at Good Friday, but it was pretty funny. Some of you may remember Hurricane Andrew, and it blew through Florida. And there was a story that there was a child named Timmy that went out, and he was standing beside his mom after the storm, and everywhere was devastation. Everything was destroyed. And Timmy's looking at his mom, and the mom is looking at Timmy. And then Timmy's looking around, and as the mom is wondering what Timmy's thinking, Timmy looks up at the mom and says, I didn't do it. You and I are just like Timmy. But here's the reality. When we look around at the destruction that is far greater than Hurricane Andrew ever wrought, I did do it. I did participate in it. We can't say it's not us. Isaiah is going every way he possibly can to say it is, it is our sin. It astounds me that there are those who want to try and say Israel is the servant. When Isaiah is saying all we're doing is bringing sin. That's the only thing we're bringing in the equation. You want to know why salvation and justification have to be by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Because the only thing you and I have to offer is sin. I, I can't add to his work. All I have is sin. But Christ has borne it for us. So our sin has brought upon us all the sorrow and misery of life, it has unleashed the hurricane of consequences we see everywhere around us, all over, that you can't help but see every day. Our sin has violated the holiness of God. We have committed treachery and treason against our Creator King. And make no mistake, for that, every human being deserves to be stricken, smitten, pierced, crushed by the righteous wrath of God. And anyone who thinks otherwise has not understood their sin and they have not understood the holiness of God. But here is the mystery. You and I do not have to bear that. He bore it for us. I listened to a worship song this morning as I was getting ready to come in. In my place condemned, he stood. 
That's exactly what Christ has done for us. And brothers and sisters, notice that there are those who have looked at this, and I mentioned this a week or two ago, that you know there are actually foolish people who said, that what you're describing is cosmic child abuse. It's as if the Father is just bloodthirsty coming after us, and the Son is... No, behold the love of every member of the Trinity. Behold the love of the Father. He sacrificed His own spotless, perfect Son so that He could forgive you. Behold the love of the Son. In our place condemned He stood, willingly embracing our punishment and giving the blessing to us. Behold the love of the Holy Spirit. When you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins uh, and our eyes were blind, He opened our eyes. He revealed the arm of the Lord to us. He lovingly comes in us and dwells with us even as we continue to have our struggles. Brothers and sisters, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the entire Holy Trinity are involved here in the suffering servant and loving us. That is the value God places upon fellowship with you and with me. That is the mystery. We, we, we can't even get out of our recliner sometimes to, because we don't care that much about being with one another. And God says, I so value knowing you, loving you, being in intimate communion with you. This price is not too great. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If that doesn't blow your mind, you're not understanding at all. The mystery of the cross But notice Isaiah 53 does not stop there, and nor is Mark's gospel going to stop there, because the servant comes in victory. Death is not the final word. Notice we're told that the servant will justify us. He does not suffer in vain. In verse 10, we're told, even though he's made a guilt offering, which is normally the end, when a lamb is made a guilt offering, that's it. That lamb is done. But notice here, he will see his offspring. Uh, He lives to do that. Notice in verse 11, the servant justifies many. That phrase throughout. Remember that this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many, we're told. Okay, whenever you're reading in the New Testament for the many, for the many, it is a reflection back on this. It is a thing going back that there are the many the servant is going to bear the sins for. He is going to justify. In verse 12, we're told the servant bears the sin of many, again, many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. That's us. What is Jesus doing before the throne right now? interceding for you and me. We're going to come forward in the gospel to the night when, when he's betrayed. And you remember Peter's, oh Lord, everybody else might turn away, but not me. And Jesus, of course, is saying, Peter, you're going to fold like a house of cards. It's not going to take a Roman legion. It's going to take, I don't know, a 12-year-old girl. And you're going to fold. But I've prayed for you, Peter. Satan wants you but he can't have you because you are the many. And I've prayed for you. And I've made intercession for you. And I'm going to die for you. And that's exactly what Christ does for every one of us. Whether you feel strong or you feel weak, Christ is interceding for you. 
Isaac, it goes on that the servant is raised and glorified. Notice this is a, a, a reference forward to the resurrection. We're told that though his life's been made a guilt offering, he's going to prolong his days. How does one prolong their days if they were just put to death? Only one way. Resurrection. And that's exactly what's being told here. And we're told after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Notice it's, it's clear. This is not he's going to be rescued out of death, you, you know, that he's going to get to skip death. No, it's after the suffering of his soul, after he's done this, he's again going to see the light of life, which is resurrection. Uh, he's going to be satisfied. And then notice, we're even told in verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. The servant dies naked and poor. They're casting lots for the, the last little thing that Jesus had as a garment, but it is okay because through his death, his burial, his resurrection, he is now ascended. He has received every covenant promise, every covenant blessing, and who does he give those to? Who? Us. You are rich. Paul says, though he became poor, he did it so that you might be rich. Every covenant blessing that God has ever made at any time is yours because Christ has suffered for us. So how do we apply this and we will come to the Lord's table? It's very brief this morning uh, on the application. Do, do we see the necessity of the suffering servant? Notice Jesus said that he must suffer many things. Um, he must suffer and die for us to be saved. God in his word has stated that sin is so destructive, sin is so heinous, that nothing other than the suffering and atoning death of his servant could pay for this could atone for our sins, could bring us back into fellowship with God. God is revealed in Scripture. There was no other way. People like say, well, couldn't God have come up with another way? And the answer to that question is no. There is no other way. It's not like God said, well, this is five different ways. I just choose this one. There's only one way for there to be salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. What? Others want to say that there's some other way. That's exactly what Peter was saying to Jesus. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me. Who? That way of thinking is not just wrong. It's literally satanic. It's completely against the way of God. There is no other way of salvation. Every other idea minimizes the destructiveness of sin and the holiness of God. It's not surprising that you and I, fallen as we are, soaked with sin as we are, addicted to sin as we are, say, I don't think it's that big a deal. A drug addict in the midst of their addiction is not the reliable guide to how bad it is. And you and I are not the reliable guide. God is. Not to mention that we also have to minimize the holiness of God. 
well, I think I could. Well, yeah, but you're not as holy as God is. So maybe standing there covered in all your sin, sin doesn't smell that bad to you. Okay? Uh, we, we regularly, it's one of the jokes in our family, I come in from my runs and tell Linda, I don't really smell that bad. And I'm sure she wants to give me a hug and a kiss. And for some reason, pray for her, she never does. See, I don't smell myself after my runs. Everybody else does. You and I don't smell our sin. A holy God does. It's very apparent. Every other way minimizes those two things. So we can never allow the thoughts and emotions of fallen humanity to eclipse the truth of God revealed in the Scripture. The servant must die and be raised, or we can never be saved. But I want to do a flip question as well. Brothers and sisters, do you and I see the beauty of the suffering servant? Do we see the beauty of the cross? See, Isaiah warned that we missed his beauty, but we have to see it now. It was missed in the first century. And I'm not, if I'd been there, I would have missed it too. But on this side of the cross, on this side of resurrection, we must see it. The cross reveals the beauty of God's holiness. In the Old Testament, there are so many psalms that sing about the beauty of God's holiness. And the cross reveals that. Sin must and will be punished by a holy God. The cross reveals the beauty of God's integrity. God does not look and say, for me to save my people, my beloved, I'm going to have to sacrifice the servant. I can't do that. I got to, I got to come around. No, God's integrity holds. I, the Lord, do not change. That glorious beauty is revealed at the cross, even at the cost of the Son of God. The cross reveals the beauty of God's love. He is willing to suffer to win you and me as his bride. Let's be honest, it's not a price you or I would pay. But God does because he loves us. Brothers and sisters, oh, the beauty of the cross. Oh, the beauty of salvation. Oh, the beauty of our Savior. I want to encourage you this week, meditate regularly upon the beauty of this. This is not just something that is like, ugh, I don't like, like that. Oh, the, the beauty of the rugged cross that we sang about this morning. Do we understand it's not something that we want to put down? The world may say it's ugly. We recognize it as beauty. The world may say that it is foolish. We recognize it as wisdom. The world may say it is weak. We recognize it as the very power of God. Meditate upon the cross. Meditate upon it daily until your heart is captivated and you fall to your knees in worship. We don't need so much to be commanded to worship as we need to have our eyes opened. When we see the beauty of the cross, the knees bend. We hit the ground before him. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table. And as we come, I invite us to come grieving over our sin, but in thankfulness rejoicing over 
what Christ has done for us. And I want to remind us, if you are here as a visitor this morning, as someone who does not come off, you do not have to be a member of our congregation to come to the Lord's table. This is His table. So we're going to be passing out the elements in just a moment as we do. If you are a believer, if you understand what I've been talking about, my only hope is that Christ has died and been raised for me. If you believe that, then you are welcome to come. Let's confess our sins. But I also want us this morning to to give thanks to God for the beauty of what he has done for us. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from this all of you in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to pass out the elements. As we do, remember to grab the two cups and take a moment to confess sin, but also to reflect upon the beauty of the salvation that is yours in Christ. Oh Lord, when you made us in your image and walked with us in the garden, we had all we needed in you. We esteemed you not. When you sent your Son, who is beauty, holiness, and love incarnate, we despised and rejected him, for we esteemed him not. Lord, like this bread, he was broken, but it was for our transgressions and our iniquities. But as your people today, Lord, we take this bread in faith and thanksgiving. In taking this, we esteem him as Savior and Lord. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, though we have sorrow when we consider our sin and the awful price you paid to cleanse us, we take this cup, which the Scripture calls the cup of thanksgiving. For Lord, we are grateful because your blood has washed away our sins. It has healed our sickness. It has brought us every covenant blessing of God. So Lord, we lift up this cup in faith and with thanksgiving, esteeming you as our Savior and Lord. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and cry out to the Lord together that we might go forth realizing and living in the beauty of what He has done for us. Lord, how grateful we are that You have opened our eyes, 
Lord, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we hid our face from you. We saw nothing in you that we should desire. But Lord, when you regenerated and raised us, our eyes were opened. And we beheld you in all of your glory and majesty and beauty. Though before we considered your cross and gospel as weak and foolish, we now know it is the very power and wisdom of God. So Lord, we take this moment to pause and to give you thanks. How beautiful and glorious you are. How great is your wisdom and your gospel. How great and glorious is the salvation we have been given in Jesus Christ. Lord, we cry out that may we never take this for granted. May our hearts and minds always marvel and be amazed at all you have done for us. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would impress this deep in our hearts so that it might cast down all rival affections, so that it might renew our desires and thoughts, so that it might fill us with love and gratitude for you and all you have done for us each and every day. Lord, as your people, we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, our beautiful, glorious, Savior, and Lord. And God's people say, Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, receive this blessing from God. This is out of John's vision in the book of Revelation, and it is his benediction to us there, so I encourage you to receive it. Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, uh, and who is to come, and from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over all the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Christ, the suffering servant, has secured every Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Yours. For more teachings and resources, Go please visit www.brcc.church.